back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the part of Caregiver Dave and Sandy. Dave, how are you? What's going on? And I'm excited about our guest because, again, I grew up Me watching too. this uh, Canon camera when I was a kid. And I remember I was very young watching and our guest was very young when he first was on Canon camera. Canon camera was huge. I was watching it from six years old up through my teen years. And after that, and you know you're big when Bill Cosby in his comedy routine says, am I on Candid Camera? Everybody knew what Candid Camera was. So we have with us today, Peter Funt. Welcome to the show, Peter. Yeah, I've got you guys beat. I've been watching <laughs> Candid Camera since I was maybe one year old. So uh, oh. yeah, it's, it's definitely been a part of my life, my family's life. And uh, thank goodness it just keeps on going, you know. Uh, next year will be the 75th anniversary of this great idea that my dad had back in on radio in 1947. And and tell uh, me about the party and the celebration. What are we going to (laughs) do? Well, it's a book party. So I'm happy to have written my book and uh, I'll be celebrating all the way into next year. (laughs) I'm very disappointed. It's not a television uh, special. I think that would work very well. You know, we hold so many records, my dad and I, in television. For example, here's a good one. We are the only entertainment show in television history to have produced new (coughs) episodes in eight different (coughs) decades. Now, that's a remarkable accomplishment. There's one news show that qualifies that way, and that's NBC's Meet the Press. But with Meet the Press, Candid Camera, the only two shows produced in eight different decades. So that's wow. a record for sure. But to answer your question about anniversaries, I don't know who keeps track of this, but we probably also hold a record for anniversary shows. <laughs> because my dad did a 25th anniversary show on ABC a 35th anniversary show on NBC. He and I did a 40th anniversary special on CBS. And then I did a 50th special on CBS. That sort of launched me into a weekly series that I'm so grateful for. So, of course, why not do a 75th anniversary special? I don't know how old you are, Peter, but you look amazing for however age you are. (laughs) Oh, well, I I used to think I look good for 92, huh? So let's let's go. Let's go, Peter. I want to jump into this specifically the history of Candy Camera in a way before we get to the history of your life. And you talked about it started out in radio. I never knew that. So how can... How was your dad able to come up with the visuals of Candid Camera on radio? Well, he didn't. He didn't, he didn't even think in television terms. Uh, you know, it came about by accident. In the mid-40s, my dad was in the military. And at an army base in Oklahoma, his job was to record messages that the soldiers could send home to their loved ones. The messages were recorded on some kind of acetate disc, and the discs were rather expensive back then. So my dad had the guys rehearse their little statement, and when they had it down pat, the red light would go on to indicate recording, and they would do it. 
Well, what happened was one soldier after another did a great rehearsal, but then became nervous and tongue-tied during the real tape. My dad's solution to this problem was to secretly disconnect the red light and secretly record the rehearsals. And after he did that in the military for a while, he realized, hey, maybe there is something to this idea of hidden audio. So when he got home, he uh, pitched it to Mutual Radio first, and they didn't buy it, but then ABC Radio did. And so in 1947, the show called Candid Microphone went on the air on ABC as a weekly radio series. And it was just conversation. There were no pictures, but that came quickly. The very next year, 1948, it went to television and was the very first program ever televised on what became the ABC television network. And then that was Candid Camera. Wow. What Are you writing all this true. down? I am. <laughs> I have a photographic memory. I'll remember all this stuff and then and talk about it another time. I won't remember people's names. I remember people's stories. That's really weird. I guess it's probably because I interview so many people, but I can remember any conversation I have. And this is just amazing. And it's something I might bring up in social audio world, Peter, with the new revolution of social audio, Clubhouse and other platforms, Facebook audio and Twitter spaces that audio has come back and to think, and people are liking that format again, but to think that Candid Camera started out as audio, and it's just amazing because we, we just go through full circle in media all the time, don't we, Peter? The funny thing is that for several years after it left, well, it didn't leave radio, it, it sort of segued into television, but for several years they retained the name Candid Microphone, even on TV. It wasn't until the show went to NBC in late 1949 that they came up with the term candid camera. And of course, that works a lot better alliteratively and uh, visually. So let's talk about the Nielsen ratings. Your show had huge ratings and you kept changing networks because I guess one network says, well, the ratings aren't good enough. And another, well, I'll take you, you know. Um, in the end, uh, I don't even remember what year you stopped uh, being on television, but how, how low were the ratings when you were finishing? Because I can't imagine them being that low. I, I mean, wow. everybody was that's a candid a, camera fan. That's about the most backhanded question I think I've ever heard. How low were your ratings <laughs> when you ran out of gas? Uh, I'll try to answer that. You were like 50 years go on, yeah. on the air. No? Let me, let me uh, answer that this way. We've we never considered ourselves done with candid camera. Good. The, the term I favor that we use in TV is resting. We are resting the format, waiting. Our next opportunity. So Village Roadshow Entertainment, they're a pretty good, Hollywood company, and we're working on the next new version of oh, Candid awesome. Camera, and I hope we can announce a deal with the network pretty soon. So that's part of my answer. The, prior to that, 
the last time I was doing Candid Camera, new production for television was six years ago on the TV Land channel. And Mayim Bialik and I, Mayim from the Big Bang Theory, okay. Mayim and I co-hosted that version of Candid Camera. And I, I actually think it was some of the best stuff uh, in our library, but the audience for TV Land is not very big, which comes around to your question about ratings. Uh, on, we were one of TV Land's biggest shows Wow. And, you know, as we used to say in New York, that plus a token would get you a subway <laughs> ride. It was we were the biggest show on a tiny, tiny platform. Uh, so so that that was a little um, the underwhelmed in the little pond. Yeah. yeah. When when I was on CBS uh, and I had my weekly series for three and a half years, Suzanne Summers was my co-host then. We were that. we won the night on Friday night quite often, and we were uh, at the top of the ratings. So, um, you know, Candid Camera's ratings, to the extent anyone cares, has kind of ebbed and flowed. But we're lucky because our material has now crossed so many generations of viewers yeah. and uh, so many different fans of different ages and all that. I, I, I don't think audience is our problem. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get back. And a lot of people have tried to copy it and, mm -hmm. you know, had limited success, but there's only one candid camera. Yeah, I think it's fair to say if imitation is indeed the sincerest form of flattery, <laughs> my dad and I were just flattered beyond our wildest imagination. They're, so like, they're, yeah. But that's a funny thing, too. For the first four decades of my dad's experience with candid camera there wasn't a single imitator 40 years of television and not a single derivative show no one doing hidden camera that i know of right and and even that created a problem you'd say well that's great you know we don't have any competition but the Emmys didn't have a category for it, so we couldn't win an award. And the critics didn't quite know how to pigeonhole it or relate to it. So sometimes their opinions were mixed or at least confused. But then when someone else started fiddling with hidden camera, it was sort of a dike that we couldn't keep our finger in anymore. And it did indeed pour out. For a while, my father tried suing some of these imitators, and that didn't work out too well because you can't really protect this sort of idea. Right. Obviously, the name Candid Camera is fully protected, but the notion of hiding a camera is not protectable, nor should it be. I, I, I'm, happy. I'm happy that so many people have tried, and I'm also happy that most all of them have in my opinion, somehow failed. Uh, it's not that complicated, but they don't really manage to capture the essence of what my dad invented and what I have tried to do in my career. And, and I can sum it up. It's to celebrate humanity. We don't come at candid camera with the notion that people are stupid or that we can make them look that way. 
We think people are great sports. We think when we tell them, smile, you're on candid camera, it is in most cases, one of the happiest moments of their entire life. So we're positive. And, uh, and if that makes us different from our imitators, then the heck with them. You know? yeah, I remember one particular episode. I'm sorry, Neil, I got to take over here. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I've been in the gas station business for, for years. My family's been in it. And you did a skit one time where uh, people would come into the gas station and you had the camera hidden and they would ask for the restroom key and you would give them the key attached to like a tire. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but, you know, people steal the key, but uh, they can't steal this one. You remember? Doing I sure that? do. Um, it's one of my personal favorites. And I was uh, there that day that we, we shot that. It's so beautiful because you see, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Dave, because that is the essence of a perfect candid camera idea. It's not a big deal. It's not, you know, uh, uh, dropping a piano out of a 10th floor window or something. Right. It's, it's a simple little idea, but that almost 100% of us can relate to very easily. Uh, it's very much like when Jerry Seinfeld says, you know, is non-fat yogurt really fat free? It's, it's in the zeitgeist. It's the stuff we think about and experience. So that experience at the gas station with the, they put the key on big things like a, a wrench or something like that. We just magnified it for comedic effect right. but dave if you're a fan of gas station humor our library is loaded with gas oh, station really? i must have missed it my <laughs> dad, could I see that stuff? my dad did the 18 foot dipstick <laughs> so the attendant is pulling trying to check the oil <laughs> and the dipstick is 18 feet long uh i sent Kate McNamara of our staff into a gas station once and asked her to to ask the guy, would you take out five gallons? <laughs> That's it. Just can you remove five gallons? That's a big, big problem for a guy who takes his gas station work seriously. Absolutely. <laughs> I sent Melissa into another gas station and she asked the guy, would you change the air in my tires? I'm, I'm convinced it's become very dirty over time. Uh, many, many gas station gags. Don't get me started. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so That's let's awesome. talk about the jingle, Smile, You're on Candid Camera, which I'm not going to sing. Dave's a, more of a singer, I think, than me. But uh, how did that jingle come about? It came about out of a very serious need in about 1963. The show had already been around for 15 years and it did not have the slogan, Smile, You're on Candid Camera, yet. And it did not have that song. It had an instrumental song, uh, not memorable. But in, in that year, 63, my father was facing a very serious problem. He was a top 10 rated show on network television, but the critics would not get off his back. Too many people wrote that Candid Camera is cruel 
or treats people unfairly. And that was the, the predominant view at that time. So he and his staff set about trying to create a marketing tool that would fix this problem. And some smart person in the room said, well, when you take a picture, a still picture, you tend to say, smile. Why don't we say smile in connection with candid camera? And from that came the slogan, smile, you're on candid camera, which by the way, let me interrupt myself. As I mentioned in my book, we got an award from a national plumbing supply company because they had figured out that smile, you're on candid camera, is the most popular graffiti above restroom urinals. Smile, you're on candid camera. Yes, so, I've seen that. <laughs> but, but then to uh, extend the idea from the uh, slogan, they got some talented guys to write a song to go with it. That became the new theme song that has lasted with us till this day. And that in turn led to more of what my dad and I called reveals. Those happy moments when we said, smile, you're on candid camera. And people realized it was a joke and they were on TV. But it all worked together, the slogan and the term and, and the reveal. And boy, I'm so happy that accident took place. Uh, I got to ask you, were there some people who were not happy, that were mad? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said that never happened. Of course, it had to when we photographed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Usually the people who decline to sign a release, and that's what you're talking about, because they, they, they do have to sign a waiver to give us permission to use it on TV. And usually the people who decline are people we photographed who were in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong other person. <laughs> oh, so if you photograph someone who's out on a date with someone else's wife, you're not going to get a release no matter how funny it is. And that happens once in a while. I once shot a sequence or tried to at a restaurant in Darien, Connecticut on a Saturday night. Now, Darien is a so-called uh, bedroom community for New York City guys. And I know now what they mean by bedroom community because that <laughs> night in that restaurant, 12 out of 14 couples we photographed wouldn't sign because they were there inappropriately. So I, I learned a bit of a lesson that night. Yeah. Otherwise, Dave, to be honest with you, people are thrilled. You know, do you remember on Family Feud, not the current one, but the original yes. with Richard Dawson? Yes. And do you remember how he, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, he's sort of like Andrew Cuomo, but he, <laughs> he was kissing all of the contestants. Who and do you remember how that built over time? At first, it was, if you look back on the original shows, it was mildly awkward. By the end of his run, it was the best thing that could possibly happen. People were thrilled to get a hug and a kiss from Richard Dawson. So 
that's the same thing that happened with Candid Camera. It was self-fulfilling. The bigger the show got, the more successful it became, the more of a thrill it was to finally be caught. Who would decline to be on? We've had people who declined and then came back to our location an hour later and saying, what was I thinking? My kids are going to kill me. I got a sign. Yeah, wow. So, so three years old is the first time you walked on set and you were on Candid Camera. Yeah. So did you write about My that? dad thought that I could be a shoeshine boy at age three on the streets of New York City. And there was no great joke except that I was told to charge $10 per shoe. <laughs> Back at a time when I guess a shine cost 15 cents or something for both shoes. And they just wondered how people would react to such an audacious and young entrepreneur. Uh, I'm told it was moderately funny, but I also learned sadly that they didn't bother to keep the footage back then. Oh. They, they didn't keep, they never kept the outtakes, it, but they edited the piece and threw everything else away. Then the show was telecast and then they threw the show away. Wow. They didn't even bother keeping that. So fortunately, a few years later, you know, they started saving stuff and we have a great library. But back then, no, I, it's only it's only the memories of my family members that uh, allow me to tell that story. But, yeah, that was yeah. my first experience. And uh, on and off throughout my youth, I was plugged in to candid camera situations. It was often a time when my dad couldn't get one of the professionals to do something because it was either too outlandish, too uh, stupid, or too dangerous. Now on the cover of my book, and here's the plug, but can you see this? I don't want to glare into the camera. Yes. But, but that's an actual photograph when I was 15 years old, and what you see there is, this isn't Photoshop or anything. I am hanging from the ceiling in what my dad thought could be an upside down room. And he took everything that should have been on the floor, <laughs> desk, chair, lamp, everything, and fastened it upside down to the ceiling. But in order to complete this effect, he needed someone young enough, nimble enough, dare I say stupid enough to <laughs> hang upside down and talk to people when they came into this room. Now, what we learned right away was you can only do this for 60, 70 seconds or so. And then the bl blood rushed to my head and some big guys had to come in and bring me down. Oh my. And then I'd walk around till I felt okay. Okay, and then back up. And we did this all day long. It was like a eight to nine hour shoot. Wow. And not a blasted funny thing ever happened. Uh, we got a good photo out of it. And that made the cover of my book. But the reactions were terrible. And I'll tell you why. Uh, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists refer to it as cognitive dissonance. They people were so stunned by what they were seeing that they just sort of sh shut down. And instead of being the great reaction that my father anticipated, 
there was actually no reaction. They just wow. ran out of the room. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> they didn't talk to him and engage. They just ran out of the well, room. Well, him was me. Him you, would, yes. would have been me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they did a little bit, but it, you know how Gleason used to say, I'm dating myself, but you know how Jackie Gleason used to say, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I got that day <laughs> from people. So you got to have at least the top three fantastic skits that you've ever done that are in the Hall of Fame. What are they? That's a tough question. Not a bad one, but a tough one because there's so many thousands and they're in so many different categories. This kind of apples and oranges. A lot of people used to tell my dad, I'll start with him. They used to say that his two most iconic sequences were the talking mailbox shot in 1949 mailbox on the street talk to people that was it but remember back then that you didn't have well let me say today everything talks to us you know your car talks your microwave oven talks your everything talks. back then the idea of a talking mailbox was just crazy Another one that he, that he gets a lot of credit for in, in a historical view is one that I participated in in a small way. It was called The Car Without a Motor. And it was a car that had the engine removed and then was towed to the top of hills. And so Dorothy Collins, who was the performer in that sequence, was able to guide, roll really, the, the car down the hill and into service stations where she asked guys to check, you know, check under the hood and there was nothing there. And that too was almost a homina homina moment, but we got some very good stuff that day. In fact, I, I recreated that about six years ago we went back to the very same spot in Yonkers, New York, where we had shot it the first time. And this time, my son, Danny, who's also part of the show now, uh, took over my role. And the actress, Megan Hilty, took uh, Dorothy Collins' role. So those are probably two of my dad's favorites. Um, as for me, I think the two in my uh, thousands that I've done, one was a thing called the Butomatic. And I discussed this in the book. Uh, I built a fake machine that I claimed could do a complete beauty makeover in just a few seconds. And all it had to be done was the woman would be put on a conveyor belt, roll into the machine, and just a few seconds later would roll out the other end, fully made up and hairstyle and everything. So in order to do this, I built this fake machine and I hired the magician's best friend, identical twins, so that one actresses, so that one twin unmade up could go in one end And then a little while later, her twin sister, fully made up, would roll out the other end. I did this for professionals. They were called one at a time to this showroom 
where I would be demonstrating this machine. And I had this woman to, to demonstrate one of our twins, but they didn't realize that. And so the subjects, as we call them, the unsuspecting people, were these professional beauticians. And I think that's important because we didn't just pull this prank on you know, some average person off the street. These were professionals in the beauty business. And one after another, they said, wow, how much does that cost? And <laughs> where can we get one of those machines? And can I try it? But as I mentioned in my book, the reveal for one of those beauticians is one of the most poignant moments in candid camera history. The tw first twin comes out fully made up. The professional beautician falls for it. I do the reveal and I signal and the other twin comes out. So now the beautician sees two twins standing next to each other and me saying, this is candid camera. And she says, I knew it. I knew it. And I say, no, you knew nothing. <laughs> and she turns to one of the twins and says, did you know? Now process that. That underscores, first of all, the reality of our <laughs> reality show, because this was no setup. She was so confused, so nonplussed, so uh, caught in the moment that she not only believed it, but she wondered if one of our two actresses knew about the joke. So oh, wow. that's oh. one of my best moments, Dave. That's all awesome. Right. So Dave. We, we uh, could talk all day. No, I know. You're now we're ready for your final question. Dave has a caregiving question. <laughs> then Wait a minute. Follow. The question is about my book, right? You want to know? <laughs> All about self-amused, I assume. Yeah, we're going to ask that. No, that's going to be the last question where we can get the book, Peter. But let's, Dave has a question about caregiving. That's interesting. Go ahead, Dave. Go What's ahead, Dave. a question, Dave? I'm sorry. I accidentally hit that. All right. Last question. Uh, second to the last question. I'm sorry. Um, I am a caregiver. My wife had a stroke. I know there's a change of topic, and uh, but she's she's doing good. She still can't talk. She can communicate, though, non-verbally. And I've been dealing with this for 25 years, but she's reinvented herself. She's doing good. You know, we have a new normal. And now I go around helping other caregivers because I realize how difficult it is to, you know, survive this thing. 30% of caregivers die just from the, the stress I'm sure you're no stranger to uh, caregivers and stress. Uh, I know your father um, is no longer with us. I don't know, you know if he went through a prolonged um, uh, illness or whatever, but have you ever uh, had experience with having to get care for another person? My dad suffered a debilitating stroke in 1993 and that forced him into retirement. I was his caregiver along with some other very mm -hmm helpful people for the next six years to one degree or another. I had to care for him. I also had to care for his business and, and keep things going. Um, but we were able to use something he coined and, and put together uh, in the mid 1980s. And that's called laughter therapy. Mm. And we have a nonprofit foundation 
called laughter therapy, oh, wow. continues to this day. And we send specially selected candid camera material to critically ill people mm -hmm. because we found, and smarter people than we have reported, that there's something about that humor yeah. rooted in reality that works very well to release endorphins and sure. make you feel better and maybe even uh, speed healing. You know, I'm no scientist, but we learned about this first in a book written by the late author Norman Cousins, who wrote a famous book called Anatomy of an Illness. And in that book, he described how watching Candid Camera helped in his recovery. And it was that that prompted my dad to start the Laughter Therapy Foundation. So Dave, yes, I'm very familiar with what you're going through. And uh, I, I wish you luck, but I also say I'll send you some laughter therapy awesome. tapes so uh, they can't you. hurt. Yeah, uh, laughter yeah. is healing to the bones. That's even in the Bible. Yep. Now, so Peter, where can we pick up your book? Show us the book again and work. Yeah, everywhere, I hope. It just came out. It's called Self-Amused. The subtitle is a tell-some memoir. It's not a tell-all memoir. I wouldn't dare do that to some of my friends, but it's tell-some. And fortunately, the some that I do tell includes many of my favorite candid camera experiences and never before published anecdotes from behind the scenes. And it also reveals to those who would care, <laughs> whoever they are, some of the wacky things I've done in my own career besides candid camera, from selling newspapers to printing news on restaurant placemats to selling dried weeds to florists in Manhattan, to publishing a magazine and yada, yada, yada. I, I've had some of the craziest experiences and I thought this has got to go in a book if only for my kids to read someday. So that's what self-amused is a combination of candid camera experiences and Peter Funt's nutty entrepreneurial dreams and I hope it's entertaining. You can get it anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, right. Target, whatever. And I wanted That's to say awesome. one more thing, Peter, before we let you go, so that when's the anniversary again? So people can- Well, Candy Camera's 75th anniversary, if you go by the radio debut, would be uh, in about 10 months or so uh, next summer. And, um, I hope we can put together a special for that. I also hope that by then, my new partners and I are more back on weekly television because, you know, Candid Camera is a wonderful idea. And uh, besides, it's the thing I do best. So yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to be rooting for you. We're, we're, in, we're in contact. We're going to be rooting for you. And uh, best of luck, Peter, with all your ventures. And it was such a delightful show, providing great information for fans of Canon Camera. And they need to pick up the book. So I appreciate it, Peter. Oh, thank you both. Nice to be with you guys. Thank all right, you. take care. Great. Thanks, Peter, for your thank time. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment here on the Neil Haley Show. Take We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I always love talking to authors, and I guess I also love the process of knowing life is abundant and that we, we can ask for what we want. We can get what we want, and we truly are 
in our own, we have our own powers in certain ways that we never know. We have these superpowers and our guest today is going to talk about it. And I'm excited to welcome the program, author Judy Bailoff, author of 365 Days of Abundance. How are you, Judy? Thanks for stopping by. I am fantastic. And I love stopping by these conversations. I always grow talking to other people about these incredible principles. I'm curious to find people in the world that want to talk about them because so many of us go through life totally ignorant of what power we have. Exactly. And so let's kind of, you know, talk about how you came to this realization because all of us come to these realizations. We come to the, I figured it out more and more that, Hey, if, you know, if we manifest certain things, we truly, you know, put this on the board and it's in, in there, then we, it, it can happen. If we, if we make a plan for something, it can happen. It's not like, you know, we have to have luck in our way. Right. Or we are not, we don't deserve certain things. How did you figure this out? Well, six years ago, I had open heart surgery and five strokes when I woke up. And at the time, lost the ability to read, write, think complex thoughts, which when the doctor told me that I wasn't ever sure I thought complex thoughts, but nonetheless, I had lost it. The use of my right hand and my balance. And the cardiologist said there was no way that he could say I'd ever get any of it back. I might get some of it back. They, it's just a side effect of major surgeries and they were sorry it happened. So that journey was a, a somewhat long and difficult. And when I came back to my big corporate job, they let me go. Oh no. You know, you know they came up with an, you know, we're downsizing or whatever, but it was because I was over 60 and just cost them a ton of money for open heart surgery. And I had to go out and find a new career. And in finding the new career, I've been incredibly successful. But at that career, I took a course with Bob Proctor. And he was my mentor before he died. And he wrote the foreword to my book. Mm. And he's the one that got me into rereading Think and Grow Rich, which I'd read years ago, read it and didn't get rich by the end of the book. So I put it on the shelf. (laughs) didn't work, right? This time, I had a more mature viewpoint of it, really studied the principles, noticed that he talked about a little bit the universal laws, and I thought, I don't know what they are. So I looked them up, I researched them, and came to the realization that we all live within those universal laws. They are eternal, They are permanent. They always work the same way. So if you learn what they are and learn them to learn to apply them in your own life, you can live a richer, fuller life just from learning the laws. And of course, two of the laws are vibration and attraction. Then there's correspondence, which is about controlling the thoughts that are in your head Mm. because we don't do that. We run on autopilot almost every day. Yeah, we do. Have you ever driven to work and couldn't figure out how you got there? Yeah, we're thinking about something else. Yeah, you're just, you're, but your subconscious will take care of you get, you, get you there safely. So it was in studying those principles and I figured out the connection. I was a girl who grew up in Sunday school. So yeah. all the Bible verses had lived, credited major league, my recovery from my strokes and heart surgery to my faith. I was yeah. grateful every day. I prayed. I, I appreciated the great medical care I got. And I believed that I would recover and have another career. I just really believed it with all my heart. Come to find, looking back at that situation, 
I was living those laws in such a real way, not even knowing what they were. Truly, yeah, because a lot of times we see a lot of people strong in faith and this might, you know, shock people in certain ways because I too was a very faith-filled person. Now I'm more and more looking at the law of attraction and looking at specific things that the people that choose to say, hey, I'm here, to, I want to suffer for God, they're manifesting that to happen more. We, we will like, that's why one of the talks that I give is there's no such thing as unlucky. You, we create our own luck. We are running on autopilot. And so haven't we all had a friend that always said, Oh my gosh, I always lose my wallet. I always get in car crashes. I always lose my job. Like they literally attract the very thing they don't want into their and life. So if you're thinking about that thing, you're going to create that thing. So talk about some of these other laws. I mean, see, I never thought of this as a subconscious. And today, Judy, this is the seat of benefit of interviewing you today, even though you're, you're wonderful in your book and all that stuff. I will take, I'm going to listen to my subconscious the rest of the day and see if that controls the, what my actions end up being. If that's what I'm thinking, and that's in my subconscious or that's what I'm thinking all the time while I'm autopilot doing, you know, whatever types of work I'm doing today where I'm thinking about that. I know for a fact that's going to happen and that's going to be created. And yeah. that, I'm creating my own reality again and again, over and over again, again and again and again. And it's, it's not easy to do. I'm telling you our house is on the market right now because we are going to move to Knoxville to be with my, my husband's father, who's 99 and he's still in good health, but, we want to spend some time with them while we can. And so we're going to move down there. So our house has been on the market for three, four days now. And you know, the market's been hot. So we're like, Oh no, what's wrong. Why isn't it selling? However, I've corrected my thoughts today to say, I am grateful that at the perfect time, this house will sell. See, if, if you keep saying it's just not going to sell or it's going to not sell. And is that, can someone else create that too? Because, you know, I had a lot of negative people in my life a long time ago, and they always wished that things would not go well for me or thought that it was going to happen. Can other people manifest some things to happen for you, too, or is it only up to us? That's a good question. We are, we are, totally, we are totally in control of our own lives. So no one and else, the people around us cannot manifest things to make things worse for us. What will happen is if you don't allow them to be who they are, let them be there, but you are here. This is your reality. And Frances Scoville Shin, I don't know if you've read any of her work, but she talks about the superconscious, which is a part of your consciousness that talks directly to God. So she's very much a woman of faith, but she was part of the metaphysical teachers back in the thirties and forties and fifties. And she did so much work for me and my mastermind body, um, putting together the spiritual and the metaphysical and so that we think as the creatures that God made us to be perfect. So it's, we're in control of our own lives. No one around us is, and we can't blame those people. Meaning in, in life, I look at those things as, Oh yeah, they're the, they're the cause of it. They're the root. I, that's why it's not happening. That's why I'm not being who I am. And I laid blame for years of my life on just, situations or circumstances that happen to me in you know, professional most of us, planning or most business or a job or certain things. And now more and more, I'm seeing I'm in control. It's not of what the things around me and it's what we think that will be the creation. So I, you know, you talk about these laws. Now, 
no one's going to go make a million dollars unless they truly have the skill set to make those million dollars, right? Is that correct? Or kind of explain that if we're looking at the abundance of, of, of money, if we are looking at money, it doesn't attract everyone if they don't have the skill sets necessary. Or what are your thoughts on that? I think the truth of the matter is, is the universal laws all work together. So the first law is the law of divine oneness, God in us. So if your desire goes against the law by you're saying, I'm going to rob banks and get a million dollars, that's not going to work because you have to be, these laws are divine laws. Divine oneness is what on all the other 11 laws hang. So the first one's divine oneness. The second one is vibration. Think of vibration like pretend you're a radio station. You know how when you're on a trip and you want to tune the radio station, if you, my husband likes country, I like pop, you might like rock and roll, right? whatever frequency that radio band is on is the only place you can get country and the only place you can get rock and the only place you can get Christian. You are like that. You run on a vibration all day and the higher vibration you're on, that's the people and the business that you will attract on that higher vibration. It's amazing. The next law is correspondence. That means correspondence, your subconscious with your conscious. So what we do is we leak our, we leak, we leave our conscious mind open to everything else in the world. What our five senses take in gossip, the news, the internet, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. We are absorbing all that stuff goes right into your subconscious because you haven't put a gate on the door. You just take it all in. Eventually it forms paradigms, which is really your view of the world. So you think the world is a bad, negative, ugly place because you listen to all the robberies and the murders and the wars in the Ukraine and the evil people that are in Russia. Well, if you're thinking that, then you're going to create that in your own life. So you're going to create, well, it's going to create your paradigm so that I saw myself in 2020 getting in, in really difficult arguments with my, some of my kids who are adults now, but we're on the other side of the political spectrum from me. And these laws have taught me how to use the universal law of relativity to look at everything as being neutral. So if I have somebody that's disagreeing from me across the table, I can say, hey, why don't we take a step back? Let me do a little research on your position. You do a little research on my position. Let's come back and talk about it. We can actually do something that's mm-hmm. not angry and stressful and makes us both stomp out of the room and be mad at each other for five weeks. I mean, you heard of families who didn't talk to each other after the 2020 election for years. That's true. That's definitely true. You know? So the universal relativity helps you realize that nothing is all good or all bad. In your book, do you write about, uh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's neutral. Everything's neutral. So your perception of it will make it real. Is the the 365 days of abundance, do you talk about all the natural laws in it? Talk every single law and every single principle gets covered anywhere from 12 to 14 times, depending on where it landed in the month. So every post has a Bible verse that's related to that law or principle. Then it has a quote many times, my reflection, and then an affirmation. But it's not just about anything. It's about the 12 laws and the 13 principles of success and wealth. And what I discovered writing the book is I started studying those principles thinking it was about getting money because that's what they talk about at the Bob Proctor courses. You know, your yearly 
your yearly income will become your monthly income because you'll make so much money following these principles. I found writing the book, Neil, that by the time I got to about the fourth month, I felt like I had such an abundant life. I didn't care if I had a lot of money. I mean, I just wanted need, needed enough money to buy a house and live and pay the groceries and go on vacation. You know, I, I realized that my joy, my abundance didn't come from money. It came from understanding that the world is this perfect, that the law of perpetual motion keeps the moon and the stars in the sky. The transmutation of energy keeps the seasons coming. Have the seasons never come in your whole life? Winter, spring, summer, fall? Never have, yeah. They always come. They're perfect. And we forget, A, to be grateful for it, B, to be in awe of it, and C, to apply it to other areas in our life. Very great. So it depends on what you learn, what you're truly passionate about and looking for, especially in these laws and all that stuff. Where can people purchase a book and learn more about you, Judy? Where can they go? You can get the book on Amazon, of course, 365 Days of Abundance. The easiest way is just to go to my website, judybayloff.com, because you get seven free days of the book. So you can kind of try it out for size and see if you kind of like what they sound like. And then you can read a lot more about me and some of the things I'm doing, if anybody's interested in, but mostly that's two ways to get the book really easily. And you really, by the end of the book, I was interviewed by Jack Canfield back in December, uh, the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. And he said this at the end of the interview, he said, everybody that's listening to me on my podcast, he said, I got this book and I read it every day. He said, I will tell you, if you read one post every day for a year, it will change your life. It's great. So people definitely need to pick it up. I appreciate you, Judy, coming by. Thanks again. It was a pleasure. Take You're care. I'm watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And you know, it's interesting. I wear my education hat. The first radio show I did was a W88.3 WRCT in Pittsburgh. And it was an education call show called the Total Education Hour. I did it probably for five or six years, one hour a week with all my other syndication talked education, talked, debated different topics. And my guest today, oh yes, it's time to debate education again. And I feel so bad for educators across the world and what they're going through. And my guest today is Paul Burnaby, and he is going to talk about his book, Why Students Disengage in American Schools and what we can do about it. Paul, thanks for stopping by, how are you? Neil, we're fine. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak with you and your and your listeners, especially about a topic that is dear to my heart, and I think one that is essential for us moving forward as a country and uh, and taking care of our young people. Okay, so let's kind of do, when I jump into it specifically enough. What is your background? So you've written a lot of books. You have an impressive resume, impressive Google search. Uh, kind of explain to me your background. Well, uh, everything I can possibly do in, in education, I was a, a teacher, middle school and high school teacher for many years, um, a, a high school counselor, uh, administration, and, and now since, uh, since 2000, our top 20 training company has been working in schools all, all over America. Uh, we've probably trained over a million teachers. Uh, we do retreats with kids, uh, sessions with parents. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, we're, and we're, we're trying to help teachers and kids have a more positive experience uh, in the classroom and, uh, and, help, and supporting parents in that process as well. Well, see, the challenge in this is when I taught in the classroom again, I was a middle school teacher, high school teacher, and elementary school teacher. The thing I 
really thought the challenge was this, that the principals didn't know how to support the teachers. Mo I only had one good principal, Patsy Caulfield, and every other one was just not very good. Mm -hmm. And they really didn't make my, my job fun. And if educators can't have fun, what they do, the, the students are going to understand that and they're not going to achieve, right? Do you agree with me? And fun and really be creative like a teacher needs to be? Neil, absolutely. And, and obviously COVID has taken a, a toll. Oh, I couldn't imagine teaching COVID. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, a toll both on the, on, the, on the teachers and on the kids. But um, even before that, um, we, we really have, we're going to have a major teacher shortage in America. This oh, is I can't believe it. I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. I mean, I remember when I got in the teaching profession, and especially being in Western Pennsylvania, it was impossible to get a teacher's job, yeah. meaning an applicant for one top school was 10,000 people. I got picked off of the, the thing, got to the top, got to the, the first round and our second or third round. I was out. Why? Because they already, the school board had it chosen. I can't believe there's going to be teacher shortages. They were thinking certainware in the country, but now they're thinking everywhere. I mean, how are we going to figure this out? We're going to have to have uncertified teachers, which is going to be a huge problem. And yeah. I was, I was talking with a principal today. Uh, uncertified teachers are already in our classrooms. Uh, we, we, we do a lot of work all over the country. We're working with some uh, fabulous uh, uh, department uh, uh, group in, in Kansas. And I was with the superintendent a week ago. I said, how many openings do you have for next year in, in one of his schools? He said, four. I said, okay, what are the, what are the, uh, uh, the applications you've got? He said, in one, one opening, I've got one application. The other three openings, zero applications. Oh, man. Yeah. This is this is going to be a, a tragedy unless we jump up. So one of the things our company is trying to do, because as we work with schools, is to try to at least create an experience that teachers have that results in them wanting to stay. Yeah. Because it, once once young teachers start experiencing negativity, uh, and and I don't even mean negativity with the kids. Uh, most of the calls that we get to work with schools are because of negativity amongst the adults in the building. And until we settle that, um, you know, we're going to have people leaving in droves. And, and we don't have the, the young people coming into college today are not. They, going you know, they don't want to measure, major in education at all. Right. right. And, our, and one of the biggest missing things is your book needs to be in every uh, college and university in the country that does teaching formation. That's definitely what needs to happen because they need to understand the professors that are doing this have to understand that. They're doing a disservice if they don't figure out this problem. If not everyone gets together, no one's going to want to measure, measure in education. Yeah, the, the, uh, the whole piece that in, in the, the particular book we're talking about tonight is why students disengage in American schools and what can we do about it? And there are lots of reasons. I mean, poverty is a factor. Yes. Uh, the, the experience of violence in kids, you know, uh, all, the, all those kinds of big ticket items about which a school is concerned about, but can't do a lot about. Um, what I was focusing on, what do kids actually experience in school that is causing students to disengage? And, uh, and you know, again, I, my whole professional life has been in school, so I'm not just beginning. I'm, I'm, I've been observing things for a long time. And I think the issue that we really have to take a close examination of is on a day-to-day -day basis, kids come into, I, I've got 14 grandkids. Some of them are really little and very curious about all kinds of right. stuff. As you take that child 
and put that kid in kindergarten. And then that kid moves from kindergarten through senior year in high school. That natural desire to learn gradually begins. It disappears. To Do you feel it's because of the changes of standards? Uh, I think that No Child Left Behind, I think that again, uh, Common Core was not the greatest program. And uh, then uh, if I'm thinking after Common Core, it went to uh, the latest one, which uh, just we're just all these different education programs are really putting teachers under pressure. And we're not looking at how students achieve the best. We are looking at and comparing ourselves to other countries in the world where there's no good comparison in education. And we really have to focus our attention on making learning fun and that's disappearing especially COVID, I don't know how, has there been any research done now? You need to write a book on this, how masks have hurt students learning, even though we had to wear them, how much this has become a serious problem that has caused kids' uh, scores to go down dramatically because of the mask. Yeah, and again, COVID had a major impact. Oh yeah, it had a major impact on everyone, yes. you, You just used the word twice in the last minute that you were speaking. And the word was comparison. If you want to know why kids disengage in American schools, that's the buzzword. From kindergarten through senior year in high school, on a daily basis, kids are compared and judged. They're compared and judged by their teachers. They're compared and judged by their classmates. They're compared and judged by themselves. All right. And and when, when the, the, the 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 what happens is, I, I came up with a new word. I mean, I didn't even know this existed. The word is a telephobia. A telephobia. A telephobia. A telephobia is the fear of not being enough. Yes. Not being smart enough, not being good enough, not being tall enough, not being pretty enough, not being skinny enough. All right. And so when you are compared and judged, and we're talking about kindergarten through senior year in high school, what do kids experience that impacts their inner life? What's going on inside of a kid? All right. What they're experiencing on a daily basis is comparison and judgment. And over time, that results in a telephobia, a kid believing they're not enough. And in that context, when that happens, when they start believing I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, the weight, uh, the strategy for dealing with that, not consciously, but subconsciously, is to disengage, to back away. Now, who, who did this? I did. I didn't realize this was going on when I was a classroom teacher. I did comparison and judgment. When? Every single day. So let, let me give you one example, sure. one example, because this is something we can do about it, all right? Um, and I'm going to ask you, Neil, I want you to think of a kid in a class. Right. Uh, let's say he's a sixth grader, all right? Okay. And something's, something's being taught, and, and this kid doesn't get it. He's confused about this math lesson or whatever it happens to be, all right? Where do you think that kid goes internally? What does he think or she? What do they feel? Um, what, what do they believe uh, when they're confused? They feel terrible, can, distraught, uh, discouraged, upset. And the older you get, the more you're going to get that. And now, the- Neil, I've asked a million teachers that question. And they have said exactly what you just said. Kids feel those kinds of things. And then they right. start. So why do we make kids feel that? Why, do we not, why don't we come be, become better at checking for understanding? Yeah, not well, here, here's the problem. What's the possibility of a kid in your class being confused? Hi, it's Hi. supposed to happen. So we have something that's going to happen. It should happen, confusion. But where kids go with it is to a dark place, a negative place. Why is that? Because we never told kids the secret about confusion. 